This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey, everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. This week, I'm really excited. We have not one, but two special guests who are here to break down some of the wildest stories about the aftermath of 2020 and Trump's attempt to overthrow the election. Authors of Find Me the Votes, a hard-charging Georgia prosecutor, a rogue president, and the plot to steal an American election, Michael Iskoff and Daniel Clydman. These are two guys who, if they show up on your call sheet, you should probably be pretty worried. Daniel's previous editor-in-chief of Yahoo News, Washington Bureau Chief at Newsweek. Michael was the chief investigative correspondent at Yahoo News, a former investigative correspondent at NBC, The Post. I, Before I welcome you guys in, I just want to say to our listeners I concur after reading this book with Douglas Brinkley, who said, who called it a narrative wake up call and a hell of a great read. It is just a page turner. And I just think connects so many dots. Michael, Daniel, welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Joe. Good to be with you. Yep. Good to be with you. Yeah. And, and thank you for the praise. <laughs> no, it's great. Alex, where do you want to get started? So we were talking pre-show about this, Joe. Uh, you said, and, and I agree with you totally, that the biggest eye-opener for you, in the book, there's a chapter called A Confederate in the Attic. And I thought that would be a really good place to start there. I mean, we might end up doing the whole show just on this, but but Joe, we're, yeah, we're, I mean, that it is wild. I mean, the whole book is, but this particular chapter is just... So Joe, where do you want to get started? So yeah, I mean, I read this and I never have seen... So many dots connected in a single chapter in any book on all this stuff uh, on January 6th and the post-election crisis. And it is just, it really was eye-opening. And so I'd really like to start there. You guys, I mean, can you explain to our, our viewers who the hell Chester Doles is? You know, and you quote him in the book saying, we need to get this civil war started. And I think it it really does reflect a lot of what's going on out there. Exactly. Look, uh, Chester uh, Doles is one of these fascinating characters who sort of bubbled up in the from the political netherworld as a result of Trump's presidency and his attempts to uh, overturn the results of the 2020 election. Um, he's a former Ku Klux Klan grand dragon, a uh, guy who spent multiple years in prison for beating up a black man in his youth and later spent time in federal prison on federal firearms charges. Uh, but he becomes a player uh, in Georgia politics in the period and in the, the run-up to the 2020 election and uh, is organizing folks to fight the results of the election, shows up on January 6th at the Gold Dome in Atlanta, the Georgia state capitol, demanding to see Brad Raffensperger, the uh, secretary of state, 
um, uh, and to confront him with his grievances as part of a whole militia that came to Georgia. I mean, this got very little. And then was like Raffensperger was quickly escorted by the state police uh, out of um, out of his office uh, to avoid a confrontation with Chester Doles. But he kind of reflects the ways that all sorts of extremist nutcases played a role in the uh, in in the Trump pressure campaign. I um, mean, here's a guy who was at Charlottesville, you know, during the, the riots there, uh, who got into a melee defending his friend uh, David Duke at the time and talks about we I spent time with him. Uh, and, you know, he talks about how Trump um, emboldened him and his racist buddies. You know, he pointed to the good people on both sides line and said that sent a message to him and his uh, literal Confederates. And, you know, it added, and I think as we conclude, it added to the air of menace that surrounded the whole attempts to, um, the whole pressure campaign on Georgia officials, that there were people out, uh, out there like Chester Doles and his militia buddies who were uh, pursuing and seeming to threaten people to uh, do the president's bidding. First of all, I, I think it's worth pointing out that the interview with Chester Doles took place in uh, Cummings, Georgia, Forsyth County, uh, which is uh, Cummings is now a kind of a suburban city outside of Atlanta. But the history there is is relevant uh, very quickly. There was a lynching there in 1912. After that lynching, there was a, an enormous amount of racial terrorism. And that city was, uh, that, that county was essentially cleansed. Black people were forced out of the county and Forsyth was cleansed. It was a, it was a racial cleansing. No black people lived there or were allowed to move back in really until 1987. This is a little known chapter of racism in, in this country. And I just think that's a little bit of a, color that's interesting. And then the second thing, just uh, uh, to follow up on Mike's point about Trump stirring this up, let's remember Trump was pretty explicit about going after black people in this country as being the source of uh, all of this supposed uh, uh, voter fraud. He focused on urbans, urban areas, Philadelphia, Detroit, Milwaukee, and Fulton County. And last point is so much uh, of the of the the horrible threats uh, against people in in Georgia, um, poll workers, you know, Ruby Freeman and uh, and her daughter Shay Moss, and so many other people were were black people in Georgia, and the threats were horribly uh, racist. Talking about lynchings and dragging people through the streets of Atlanta, you know, by their trucks and so on and so forth. So the racial element, the racial dimension to this story, of course, against a backdrop of all of this. Uh, history in Georgia with uh, voter suppression and people losing their lives over the vote is really an important part of the story. Yeah, no, I, I thought the way, just like from the remarks Trump made about Charlottesville, this guy, Chester Dole's being there, being kind of inspired, you know, signaled that this is great stuff. And then uh, and then his connections were with Nazis and, and the, even the Turner Diaries. I mean, I don't know if you could, exp I, I mean, it just... It just shows how deep and dark this thing can get, you know, down the rabbit hole. 
Absolutely. I mean, look, uh, uh, Chester Dole's um, claim to have forsworn racism and, um, uh, you know, gotten beyond his earlier Klan's views. And as we point out, that doesn't quite square with the public record. Uh, after being a grand dragon of the uh, Ku Klux Klan, he was like the Georgia coordinator for the National Alliance, which was, in fact, a neo-Nazi group. He brings uh, the author of the Turner Diaries to uh, to Georgia. Turner Diaries is that horrible racist fantasy about a race war. Um, and of course, he shows up at Charlottesville. You know, he's a part of this. Uh, also, uh, the Hammerskins, which were a uh, sort of, uh, you know, another racist skinhead group. He was a, a spear, uh, a spear leader of that. Um, so, you know, he had plenty of connections to all these really far right vicious groups. Uh, and the fact that he was in any way a player on the scene in Georgia says a lot about the continuation of, you know, this strand of uh, of politics that's been there for many, many years. And then he was trying to to meet with Raffensperger on January 6th. Yeah, that yeah. Right? And I'm using quote fingers Exactly. Here. Meet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he was uh, trying to stage a confrontation, um, you know, going through the state capitol. Uh, you know, his militia buddies were outside. You know, this, you know, probably would have gotten attention and more media attention had it not been for what was going on at the same time that same day, January 6th in Washington. So it kind of overshadowed shadowed um, what was happening at the Georgia State Capitol. But, you know, I we opened that chapter, which is really the uh, uh, book two of the uh, in 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 Find Me the Votes that we broke it down into three different um, uh, sections. And this is the section about the conspiracy uh, uh, to overturn the results of the election. And I wanted to start there because it's just, as I said before, you know, it's the, the this sort of racist backdrop uh, that was very much a part of the uh, uh, pushback uh, on the election is was was part of the is is an important part of the story and it sets up a lot of what happens afterwards support for that trippy show comes from odoo what is odoo well odoo is the only software your business will ever need featuring a suite of integrated business applications odoo connects your business operations together so you get more done in less time odoo has apps for everything CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it, Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash trippy. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash trippy. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of what's still happening today, I mean, I, I think towards the end of that chapter, uh, and this sort of getting into the, I think, the physical danger for people like Raffensperger and Prosecutor Willis, that you talk about, and also what we're seeing uh, with people who are, who are, you know, still mobilizing and being violent today. But you talk about, uh, you know, a kill list, I think, towards the end of that chapter. And I wonder if you could get into that a little bit. And particularly, the other thing I think you connect in the chapter is how foreign actors like Iran may have been involved in sort of fomenting, you know, taking advantage of this racial divide. 
sure, they were playing up uh, off of um, uh, Trump's attacks. And you had uh, Iranian link uh, hackers um, who uh, create this kill list in which they dox uh, all the people who Trump was going after, including Brad Raffensperger, putting up you know his home address, uh, his uh, personal cell phone, with with you know targeting him, you know, with a literal target, uh, and, and many of the others like uh, Gabe Sterling, who was his director of operations. Um, but it shows the way you know foreign <laughs> malevolent actors were exploiting our political divisions in the United States and picking up on the kind of turmoil that Trump was seeking to foment. Was Dole's involved in that anyway, or and how do we know? It was uh, Iran. Was there? I think you mentioned an FBI. But that was the FBI. Yeah, the FBI. Uh, you know, at first, um, the the suspicion was that it was you know uh, extremists like Chester Doles who had created this kill list. In fact, it was you know the FBI determined it was. Uh, Foreign sourced, and that was an example of you know uh, foreign actors, malign actors, uh, you know, uh, using our political divisions to exploit things. But you know, the important thing is these. This had horrific consequences. I mean, we'll get to the uh, attacks and threats to people like Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss in, in a moment. But Raffensperger himself, you know, comes under this enormous pressure. The Proud Boys show up at his house. Uh, uh, you know, MAGA warriors, uh, you know, harass his his daughter-in-law and break into our house. Um, his wife, Trisha Raffensberger, gets these horrible sexualized uh, uh, threats and messages on her cell phone. And, you know, one of the dots we connect is how did this all come about? Right. And it starts with in Atlanta a few days after the election, Don Jr. flies down to Atlanta. There's all these meetings in the Buckhead Republican Party headquarters, and he's demanding that uh, everybody in the Republican Party in Georgia and Republican office holders get behind his president's, uh, uh, his father's attempts to overturn the results of the election or his father, Donald Trump, the president of the United States, will tank the uh, two Republicans running in the uh, runoff in January. Um, you know, uh, Dave, uh, David Perdue and uh, Kelly Leffler, the two incumbent senators who didn't get it to 50 percent, were facing this runoff in January. Don Jr. saying, you folks get behind my father or your, you know, your two Republican senators are gone. And what happens Leffler and Purdue put out this statement demanding that Raffensperger resign immediately. And that triggers all the threats against Brett Raffensperger. It's that night, the night that they put out that statement, that Trisha Raffensperger gets this barrage of, uh, of cell phone calls uh, and text messages uh, at home threatening her life. Uh, threatening all sorts of horrific sexual attacks. It's amazing the you know the courage that he and and, and Willis and and the two women you were talking about. Uh, if, could you get into you know the rest of what they were all facing and and, and your take on it? Well, the, you know this is a story uh, in some ways of unsung heroes uh, in in the battle against what Trump and his forces were doing. And it's from the highest levels of the government in Georgia. We, we, we uh, Republicans, uh, by, by the way, we, we call it the Republican 
the iron wall of resistance. So, so uh, Kemp, who is resisting these calls for for a uh, special legislative session, Carr, the Attorney General, who threatens to resign over all of this, and then uh, we'll, we'll get into to Jordan Fuchs, uh, the uh, uh, political consultant uh, working for Brad Raffensperger, who secretly taped the the, the famous infamous call with the president. The perfect phone call, right? The perfect phone call, right? But the heroism all up and down the line in Georgia, and it's the, it's it is the difference between I think you know protecting our our democracy surviving and not is is those uh, individuals who who stood up to Trump uh, and who were suffered uh, terrible uh, consequences uh, beca- because of it. But on the terrible consequences, you want to talk yeah. about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss because yeah. that that I mean they they that is perhaps yeah. the most poignant story of all. Yeah, I mean look. These are uh, uh, two women, um, a mother and daughter, a Ruby Freeman, uh, a uh, I think sixty-two year old uh, grandmother who volunteered in you know most elections as as a poll worker because her mother had instilled in her uh, the precious preciousness of being able to vote in Georgia after she had been through you know poll taxes and all of the other things to uh, to keep black people in in, in Georgia from um, from voting in, in elections. And her daughter, uh, Shea Moss, who worked for the Fulton County um, Elections Office um, as a, an elections ad- administrator, they, they did nothing. They did their jobs. They did their, their civic uh, duty to help people vote freely in, in Georgia. And the Trump people unleashed this torrent of violent uh, and horrible threats. And it was more than just threats. People were showing up at their home, people were threatening to arrest them. People were, you know, d- delivering you know, pizzas to their door on a, on, a, on a regular basis. This was all based on um, the the total distortion of a video that had uh, been uh, you know, leaked out of election night uh, at the um, State Farm Arena Center. Some some suggestion that uh, that they were stuffing ballots that they had taken a suitcase out from underneath the table when people weren't there. Um, total nonsense. And Rudy Giuliani and the others were spreading it around. The right-wing uh, media ecosystem were jumping all over it, running pictures of them, you know, supposed to look like mugshots because they were criminals. Giuliani testifying that they look like drug dealers scur- scurrying around. I mean, a racial component to just about everything uh, that was said about them by the Trump forces. And in the end, you know, that becomes part of the investigation, these these threats to Ruby Freeman and um, and Shea Moss. And it turns out and although this was not uncovered by uh, Fonnie Willis, um, uh, it was actually uncovered by us. There are real ties between the Trump campaign and these uh, people who are showing up at their doors at, at, at their homes and, um, you know, suggesting that if they didn't fess up. Uh, they would go to prison. Uh, it was people who worked for black vo- black voices for Trump. And one of the indicted figures in the uh, Fonnie Willis indictment is this uh, uh, character Willie Harrison Floyd, who was who 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 was part of the whole Ruby Freeman intimidation campaign that drives her from her home. Uh, and uh, he was a paid operative of the Trump campaign. He was working at a Trump campaign headquarters. He got it was paid over a hundred thousand uh, dollars during the course of the campaign, and uh, he's one of the players uh, who's intimidating Ruby Freeman. Um, so it's just one more dot uh, 
uh, that we've uh, been able to connect here. So to zoom out a little bit, and I, I, I we're we're already pretty far in the weeds here, but there's a quote about, and I know this was about the Raffensperger threat that I I thought was really illustrative that can kind of take us take us out and talk more about Fannie Willis, but. The episode was illustrative nonetheless of a nasty and menacing trend that was coursing through the state's politics, Georgia. It was a trend fueled by root causes, national in scope, and years in the making, an increasingly polarized electorate, the erosion of trust in civic institutions, the advent of social media with its cordoned off silos filled with hate and conspiracy theories. I, I want to zoom out and, and, and do talk more about the really most of the subject of the book is the whole Fannie Willis saga. What did you guys, when you were covering this, and I know you got to talk to her dad, where did you see this whole thing going? Was there kind of a narrative about how she jumped in and, and what she had to do? Well, you know, it's an interesting story. Obviously, she's uh, been in battle now, and we could talk about that and some of the uh, allegations that are swirling around uh, the case at the moment. But you know, it begins in a very, you know, pedestrian, pedestrian in some ways, but illuminating way. The day that that Raffensperger phone call uh, is uh, January 2nd. And, you know, as uh, we discussed earlier, it's secretly taped by Raffensperger's uh, top aide. Uh, and, uh, and then it is uh, leaked to the Washington Post and is out there in the public sphere. Everybody's dissecting it. The very next day is Fonnie Willis's first day in office as district attorney. And while everybody in the rest of the world is dissecting Trump's comments about find the votes and criminal prosecution if Raffensperger doesn't, you know, Fonnie Willis is focused on a much narrower question, which only a veteran prosecutor would. Where was Raffensperger when he took that call? And it turned out he was in his home, his estate in, uh, in Johns Creek, which is just inside the Fulton County border. And immediately, Bonnie Willis, once she learns that, realizes this is in her county, it's in her jurisdiction, and she's got an obligation to investigate. And, um, you know, that's what sets this all off. She wasn't looking to investigate Donald Trump. She had a full plate and a full, uh, a very crowded agenda, thousands of unindicted murders and rapes and sexual assaults uh, uh, she had to deal with. Um, uh, and, you know, it was that was that was what our campaign was all about, fighting crime. And now she's got this other potential crime that occurred in her jurisdiction, and it's what launches the uh, the investigation. You know, one of the, the the dots you connected that that I didn't even know about. I mean, for me personally, was you know the influence her father John Floyd had on her, and it turns out he was he was working for Mer for Tom Bradley in Los Angeles as the campaign manager at the same time I was uh, working for Tom Bradley in. My first campaign. Small world. <laughs> really small world. But could you get into a little bit about his influence on, on her? And, and Yeah, he is a fascinating character. By the time you were working together, um, he had sort of shed his, uh, his radicalism. Um, John Floyd uh, was born in, uh, in, in South Central uh, L.A. Uh, in a, a poor family, uh, I think, living with 16 relatives, uh, 
you know, chickens in the in the backyard. And um, he's essentially uh, raised by um, the streets, the gangs in his neighborhood. Uh, and we we interviewed him at, at, at great length about about all of this. And he's a wonderfully compelling character. It's, Father was uh, was abusive. Came home from the army and and was a, a, a drunk and, and abusive. And John Floyd uh, got um, a lucky break, uh, which is um, he he was going to a parochial school, and the nuns there saw that he had uh, significant uh, potential and helped him along. He eventually uh, goes to a community co- community college, and then he joins the Kennedy campaign. Uh, and it's the civil rights era, and he uh, he goes uh, down uh, down south uh, to do organizing. Um, for voting. And, you know, he, growing up in L.A., he didn't see the kind of Jim Crow regime that existed in, 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 the, in the South of the United States. So he is shocked and horrified uh, when he sees, sees the white, white only, whites only uh, uh, signs. And, and he becomes increasingly radical and uh, somewhat disillusioned uh, with Martin Luther King's nonviolent approach. Um, and ultimately joins Stokely Mark, uh, Carmichael uh, and, uh, and other Black Power nationalists and becomes a Black Panther. In fact, he becomes the founder of the uh, L.A. Uh, chapter of, of of the Black Panthers, which was an offshoot of you know Huey Newton and uh, the others who were who were up in um, in Oakland. And um, you know, at one point he has, he's on a mission to provide security for H. Rap Brown, a- another one of these uh, uh, Black nationalists and, and Black Panthers who was on uh, trial for uh, drug charges. Uh, gun charges in, in Louisiana. He ends up getting arrested by the police there, um, trumped up charges, ends up in prison for a couple of months. When he gets out of prison, and this is kind of the key moment in a way that ends up uh, being important for uh, the daughter that he would later have, uh, Fonnie Willis, he decides that uh, after that experience, uh, he needs to dedicate the rest of his life to protecting uh, and defending uh, Black people uh, who are targeted by by the police and law enforcement, and um, he decides to go to law school, and he does. He goes to UCLA. Um, ultimately, he becomes a criminal defense lawyer, and um, uh, in in Washington D.C., practicing in D.C. Superior Court. And by now, he is raising Fonnie Willis uh, on his own, single father, raising this little girl who comes to the courthouse with him, spends time with the judges there, and says, "Daddy, I want to be a judge." And John. John Floyd says to her, well, if you're going to be a judge, you're going to have to become a lawyer first. And, and, and the rest is history. She goes to law school. Interestingly, last thing I'll say about this is he, uh, when, when, when she is uh, s- s- serious about being a, a judge, as she gets older, he says, well, you should be a prosecutor because that's a faster uh, route to becoming a judge than if you're a criminal defense lawyer. So despite you know, his background as a criminal defense lawyer, a civil libertarian, a radical uh, he wants her to become a prosecutor. She does. She becomes one of the best prosecutors, probably who ever graced the court courtrooms of Fulton County. And here we are with her uh, prosecuting the ex president of the United States. Huge influence on her. They are extremely close. He lives in Atlanta now. Uh, they talk ten times a day, according to what Bonnie Willis told us. You know, I, I, I'll tell you, I was only twenty, maybe twenty twenty one at the time. But if you told me four days ago before I picked up your book that. My paths crossed with, with uh, <laughs> Fonnie Willis's father, uh, and that I actually were, you know, we were in the same uh, uh, campaign and working for Tom Bradley at the same time. I, I would have told you, you know, you're on Mars. But this gets into her. You know, you have a chapter, the badass. Uh, but there's also this the 
this moment that you capture uh, about the threats uh, that she was taking and the, and the body double episode, I, I think that does illustrate like, you know, what, how dangerous the threats were, but how courageous uh, her and others, uh, these heroes that you talk about uh, were, were in those days. It's an absolutely extraordinary story. We talked before about the threats to the Raffensburgers and Ruby Freeman and uh, and, and Shea Moss, but the threats to Fonnie Willis um, were absolutely relentless and and pretty scary. And uh, you know, look, a lot of it was riled up by Trump, right? He's calling Fonnie Willis a racist, a Marxist, a radical. Um, you know, encouraging his people to go after her. Um, and and they do uh, in in some pretty horrible ways. And you know, as things got closer to the indictment, um, she get she's getting these calls on her personal cell phone from this digitally disguised voice threatening, you know, threatening to kill her, threatening to rape her, using the N word, but also bringing up her daughters and their names and where they live and and threatening them so it was you know not just her but her family as well and then as indictment day approaches even more they pick up a assassination threat on a MAGA web website. The best time to shoot her is when she leaves the building. And this really spooks them. Um, so we all remember in August when Fonnie Willis uh, goes out late at night, it was midnight, and has her press conference unveiling the indictment, uh, the racketeering conspiracy indictment against Donald Trump and uh, 18 co-defendants, including Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, John Eastman, and the rest. Um, and, uh, you know, that makes instant headline news. Right after that press conference, unbeknown to we in the press at the time watching it, she goes back to her office, takes off her black business suit and pearls, puts on a baseball cap, t-shirt, and sweatpants, and a body double, somebody on the staff who resembles her, um, puts on a business suit looking exactly like what Fonnie Willis just wore over, by the way, a Kevlar bulletproof vest, um, which a lot of them involved in the case had been wearing or had been assigned to wear for some time. And there's a decoy operation uh, late at night. The uh, body double and a team of others, you know, drive out from the parking garage uh, by the courthouse and Fonnie Willis is smuggled out the back and driven to an undisclosed undisclosed location at a uh, at a local hotel. It's an incredibly dramatic story. I mean, can you imagine just thinking, taking a step back, you know, if Merrick Garland or Jack Smith had to get smuggled out of their office after a press conference because of an assassination threat? I mean, it would be like mind boggling and huge news. But that was the reality for Fonnie Willis on the ground dealing with this in Georgia. And guys, think of the poignant irony uh, that Fonnie Willis is being victimized by the same kinds of horrific threats that she is methodically investigating in the cases of Ruby Freeman uh, and, and Shea Moss and, and others. It just it gives, gives you a sense of how how pervasive all of this was in Georgia at, at, at that time. I say at that time, this is in August. It continues. It has persisted. And I think uh, part of the reason we wrote the book was not just to tell 
a colorful tale of what happened um, in 2020. It's because um, this is the country um, that we live in now, and it and and this is continuing. Um, and um, there are of course a lot of dangers of these things happening again uh, in this next campaign, this this current uh, presidential campaign, which is, by the way, almost certainly going to be uh, a repeat of of 2020 with Trump and Biden. What do you make of her situation now? Uh, you know, is this sort of more of the same piling on her? You know, I mean, I know some of this is her own uh, her own uh, mistake, but uh, how, how do you read? Will it have any impact on the case or? Well, it's it's certainly sucked up a lot of media oxygen. And um, I think, uh, you know, I think it, you know, to state the obvious, uh, it was a, a, a lapse in judgment to have had this this relationship with Nathan Wade, uh, the chief prosecutor in charge of the case. But um, that said, and by the way, I mean, you know, she had made missteps before that we document in the book, most notoriously when she sponsored a fundraiser for a friend of hers who was running against one of the targets of her investigation that led the judge uh, in charge of the matter to, uh, um, you know, that was, you know, as he put it, it was a what were you thinking moment. And he disqualified Fonnie Willis from prosecuting that um, the opponent of her friend who she was helping. And certainly this, you know, the relationship with Wade fits into that category of what were you thinking? Um, But that said, I mean, it is important to sort of, first of all, she's going to respond. She has to by the end of this week. And, you know, I think we can expect a vigorous response that will challenge at least some of the allegations that have been out there. But at the end of the day, there's absolutely no evidence that this had any impact at all on the case itself. Uh, None of the defendants were deprived their constitutional rights or uh, uh, there was no evidence of prosecutorial misconduct in the way the investigation was conducted or the indictment brought. And I think the lawyers who have now adopted this motion, it began with Michael Roman, who was one of the uh, implementers of the notorious fake elector scheme and has now been um, embraced by Donald Trump's legal team as well. And they're going to have a hard time making the case that this uh, supposed conflict of interest, which, by the way, seems a little strained on its face, um, had had any uh, impact that was detrimental to uh, their clients. And so we'll see. Uh, The judge has a... um, uh, a hearing scheduled for uh, February 15th uh, on this matter. I mean, we're going to see her response in the next few days. And, um, you know, it may be at the, at the end of the day, we're talking about an inter-office romance, um, if that's what it was. Uh, I know a thing or two about sex scandals, having covered, uh, you know, a number of them in the course of my career. And as sex scandals go, this is pretty lame. It's two single people in their 50s, Um having a relationship, um, you know, I mean, there is a so what aspect to this. Uh, we're getting towards the end here, but I, I want to get get to sort of fitting into to, to this conversation. But, you know, the last line in the book uh, is hers. And it's a quote, when I walk into a courtroom, I'm always underestimated. And that can be a powerful thing. Uh, and so now you, you've talked to all these people. It, would you recommend voting against her at this point? Or <laughs> I would not count Fonnie Willis out. Um, she is tough and resilient. And as we talked about a little bit before in the conversation, she's already been through 
a lot uh, investigating uh, Donald Trump, and she has hung out. I will say that given this latest controversy, um, she may have lowered expectations. Uh, maybe that will play to her advantage. I fully expected that she was going to be a significant courtroom presence um, uh, in this in this case, you know, assuming it went to trial. In fact, just a quick side point on on Nathan Wade. Um, he was never anticipated to be uh, the lead trial lawyer at all uh, or the legal architect of this case. He was a behind the scenes player, an organizer of the case, a manager of the lawyers running the grand jury process. Bonnie Willis, on the other hand, is a force in the courtroom, uh, legendary. I mean, you know, young prosecutors in the Fulton County DA's office were instructed to go watch her, uh, her trials, murder trials and rape trials and the like. Uh, and I know from having talked to people on her team, uh, they, they actually want her to try a significant amount of this case. Whether she will or not, I don't know. How the latest controversy will affect that decision, I'm not sure. But if she gets through this, which you know, I think she likely will, my guess is you're going to see her in the courtroom, you know, maybe doing the opening uh, statement, uh, maybe cross-examining witnesses. And she will have been underestimated again. So I think that that last line of the book may be prophetic. Joe, I think that's a pretty good place for us to wrap up. Thanks, Michael and Daniel, for coming on. And thanks, everyone, for listening to that trippy show. Look, um, I can't speak more highly or recommend more highly that you you go out and get Find Me the Votes. Uh, these We've covered like just a thin outline of page after page of these kind of details that these guys and dots that they've connected. I literally started it. I can't put it down uh, until I got to that last line. And I really do believe that you'll get a much better understanding of, of the real threat that still exists. It's not just the story, this story. It's not just about Bonnie Willis and, and, and you know, the, the hard charging prosecutor you know, a rogue president and the plot to steal an American election. It really is what Douglas Brinkley said, a narrative wake-up call and one hell of a great read. We'll put the the book uh, links in our show notes so that people can go there and link. But where can they find you on, on uh, social media or, or uh, read more about what you're doing? Um, I'm at, uh, at Isakoff on X, that's at I-S-I-K-O-F-F. And um, Danny, you want to tell people where to find you? Yeah, I'm at uh, at D. Clydman. That's D-K-L-A-I-D-M-A-N on on X, uh, formerly known as Twitter. Um, And I think it's the same handle for Instagram and Facebook. We'll include a link where you can buy the book in our show notes, too. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Really Really great to talk. Yes, it was. Yeah, that was fun. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot.